He is risen. Amen. Amen. Do you live like it? That is the question before us this morning. That is the real question when it comes to Easter. Jesus is risen. Our whole faith depends upon this truth. All of what it means to be a Christian hangs on the reality that Jesus is risen. That was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. There he affirmed in the first verses, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. A central tenet of the gospel message is the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is not raised, Paul says in that chapter, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. The apostles and us through their message are guilty of misrepresenting God. We are still in our sins, having had no sacrifice made for us. Thus we shall suffer the wrath of God for having broken his law. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And the bottom line is that we of all people are most to be pitied because we're following a dead Savior. But Christ is risen from the dead. He has raised as he said he would. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus is risen to which Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, which we read for our scripture reading, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So again, my question to you is, do you live like Jesus is risen? Are you living a life that is steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Well, we're continuing this morning our series in the book of Philippians. So far, we've looked at some of the main themes of the letter, such as joy, particularly in the midst of suffering. Paul is writing this letter from prison, so he has something to say about that. We also talked about the importance of the gospel and the support of the gospel ministry, the partnership that Paul has with the church at Philippi, along with other fellow workers in the gospel. We saw Paul's introductory Thanksgiving prayer at the beginning of chapter one. We discussed Paul's great love for and admiration of this church as they sought him out to partner with him in the gospel. They pursued him, they kept up their relationship with him, and sought to support him in any way they could, even out of their poverty. And this brought Paul great joy, even though he was sitting in prison for the cause of Christ. Next, we saw Paul's report back to them about his ministry. He made clear that though he was presently sitting in prison, the gospel was not imprisoned. He shared the gospel as often as he could, and he'd learned that others were emboldened to preach the gospel as well as a result of his example. Even though he was in prison, the gospel was still going forward. And Paul said, you know what? That gives me a reason to rejoice. Most recently, we looked at Paul's joy over Christ himself. He was encouraged, trusting that deliverance would ultimately come from Christ, that Jesus would ultimately deliver him from this life. That he had lived his life with no regret, such that whether by life or by death, he was confident that Christ would be glorified. And he also expressed some confidence that the Lord would deliver him from his present circumstances so that he can continue to serve for Christ's glory. 
As we read through this letter, we come to the realization that Paul is headed somewhere with all of this. His insistence on highlighting his joy in Christ, his joy over the gospel, expressing his confidence in Christ in the midst of persecution and suffering, he's communicating these truths to a church that is dear to him for a reason. When we first discussed the themes in this letter, we also touched on the reality that this church was struggling with a lot of things. They were struggling with difficulties from within and from without. From without, they were struggling with persecution as Christians. The nation around them, Philippi, the city around them, was hostile to them because they named the name of Christ. From within, they were struggling with internal strife and disunity that resulted. In all of these things, it was Paul's aim in this letter to encourage them in the Lord, to commend them to the grace of God, though he could not be with them in the flesh. As we come to our text this morning, we see him turning a bit of a corner. He begins to get to the heart of the matter, to the core of his encouragement to the church. He says, in essence, as he begins this section, which goes from chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 18, by reminder that the gospel that they hold so dear, as evidenced by their support of his ministry, the gospel that they hold so dear ought to make a difference in their lives. It ought to make a difference with how they respond to persecution from without, and it ought to make a difference with how they pursue unity from within. Chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, our section for this morning, is a transitional section leading to this broader thought. Here he encourages them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the message. It's very simple. Live like you know Jesus died for your sins, rose again, and has given you new life. Live in light of that new life that has been given to you through the gospel. This should be true regardless of what trouble you face from without and regardless of what trouble you face from within. Live worthy of the gospel, period. I wonder how often we consider that truth. We love to celebrate Easter. We love to think on the gospel during the Easter season. But if we only think on the gospel during the Easter season, on what basis do we live our life in between? In other words, what drives your approach to life when you're not celebrating Easter? Paul's exhortation here is that it ought to be the gospel. Thus again, he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Our text has three simple points. Live worthy of the gospel regardless of human leadership. Live worthy of the gospel by being unified. And live worthy of the gospel with confidence in God's sovereignty regardless of persecution. In each of these points, Paul is introducing here, but we'll flesh out in greater detail throughout the rest of the letter. Well, let's read this section, this short section of three verses again together, and then we'll pray and focus in on the next, these next three verses. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw, I had, and now hear 
that I still have. Let us pray. Our Father, once again, we come before you to ask that you would speak. Your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's take a look at that first point. Live worthy of the gospel regardless of human leadership. Paul says again, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, all of what Paul has been saying thus far, including the discussion of his own personal circumstances and the example that it provides has led to this point. This point sets the tone for the rest of the exhortations of the whole letter. Really, this point sets the tone for the expectation of the Christian life. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look again at Paul's words. He starts in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does he mean by only? Well, he just completed a brief section, again, discussing his own plight. He expressed some uncertainty with mixed hope that he would, in fact, see them again. Another translation, instead of the word only here, inserts whatever happens. Whatever happens, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I think that gets to the heart of it. Whatever happens, he says, let this be true. He says, this is important. Listen up. Make sure above all else, this next thing that I'm about to say happens. This is an imperative must. Paul is saying, regardless of how it goes with me, this is how you ought to live. He even says in the next breath, whether I come to see you or remain absent. Again, Paul is sitting in prison and he's unsure of what's going to happen to him next. He feels somewhat confident that God is going to deliver him from his present circumstances. But he's not sure ultimately because it's in the hands of God. And so he says to them, whether I come to see you, whether I am physically able to see you or I remain absent, this still needs to be true of you. He says, I know you all care for me. I know that you've grown accustomed to my leadership, but whether I'm there or not, you ought to pursue a higher standard. You ought to be living for an audience and authority greater than I. You ought to be striving to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. This church loved Paul. Paul was their founder. They followed his life and ministry. Again, even after he had to leave Philippi due to persecution, they sought him out and they helped to support him in as many ways as they could. They held him in high regard as an apostle and a preacher. They cared for him, and he cared for them. And yet Paul wanted to make clear that it was not human leadership, human authority, human standard that should govern their conduct. But again, they had a higher calling. We've all been there, right? Whether we've been the kids or we've been the parents, the parents leave the house, and the kids start acting a fool because the parents aren't there to watch over. And so the parents, as good as the best they can, they try to give a reminder now, even though I'm going to be leaving the house, I'll be back. You guys make sure you, uh, you take care of things. We don't have any experience of that in our house. See, guys, I gave you a, you know, a little boost. There. Maybe it's at work. The boss leaves work to take care of something outside the office, and when, what does everyone else do? They start slacking off, right? They start reading the funny papers. They... Um, start shopping online. No work gets done because the boss, boss is not there to see. Paul is saying, listen, guys, it shouldn't matter if I'm there or not. Again, there's a higher standard to which you've been called and to which you, also, you ought to be living. 
Now, Catonsville is in a similar situation in a sense, this church. The Lord has moved our senior pastor and his family who've been here for the past seven years onto another assignment. It's hard to make a transition like that. But I know as well as you that Chris has been clear over the past seven years that this is not the First Baptist Church of Christ, right? It's not Snyder Memorial Baptist, <laughs> right? This is the Catonsville Baptist Church of which Jesus Christ is the head. Amen. Chris said that. I'm 100% certain that he would agree. And I know that you all know that. And so we have a higher calling. So it doesn't matter who's here in human leadership. Could be Chris, could be me. If the Lord takes me home in the, you know, in the near future or in the long term, it's going to be somebody else as the Lord continues to keep this ministry going. Doesn't matter who's the human leadership. We have a higher calling. We're called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, what exactly does he mean by to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, we have translated as let your manner of life in the ESV. In the King James, it says it a little different. I love the King James in some aspects. It says, let your conversation be becometh of the gospel. I like the idea of your life as your conversation. Often in passages when the King James speaks of the way of one's life, your character, the way you live. King James calls it your conversation. That word is very descriptive, no pun intended. In other words, how does your life speak? If someone were to look at your life, your actions, your words, what would it communicate? What would the message be? The story of your life communicates something. What is it saying to the world? When you're not in church on Sunday or on Easter Sunday morning when everyone wants to come to church and, you know, even if you've not gone to church any other Sunday, you like to come to church on those special Sundays, right? But when you're not in church on Sunday, what does your life communicate? What does it say to the world around you? Again, our text says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The point is that your life ought to communicate the gospel. If you profess to be a Christian, you profess to have faith in Jesus Christ, when people see your life, when they hear your life speak, they should hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't miss the imperative. This is not a could. It could be worthy of the gospel. This is an ought. It ought to be worthy of the gospel. Think about it another way. Taking a closer look at that word that we translate, let your manner of life be, you could also translate that word to live as a citizen. Because it has, in the root of the word, is the root for another word um, in the Greek. It's the, the Greek word for city. And so the idea of being a citizen is inherent in this statement, in other words. That may seem strange, but the idea in context then, to try to put it all together, Paul is saying here, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven. He'll make our status as citizens of heaven more explicitly clear at the end of chapter 3, where he says very simply, 
Our citizenship is in heaven. He's sowing a seed for that idea now. One author says it this way in commenting on this passage. He says, Paul's use of this political word here was probably inspired by the pride of Roman citizenship in the Roman colony of Philippi. Residents of this colony enjoyed the privilege and responsibility of living under the protection of Roman law. Paul appeals to this sense of civic pride in his directive to live as good citizens. But here the focus is not on their earthly citizenship, but their heavenly citizenship. We certainly live in a similar climate for those who are citizens of the United States of America, right? We take great pride in our citizenship. We tend to take great pride in our nation, and yet we still have a higher calling. And our citizenship as Americans never trumps our citizenship in heaven. Here in our text, Paul is calling out this basic truth of the Christian life. Being a Christian means that as those who have been redeemed by Christ, those saved from the wrath of God through his sacrifice, as we discussed on Good Friday evening, his sacrifice is the one who became sin, who knew no sin. As we are now made partakers of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ, as Christians, we are citizens of heaven. And because that is true, this is our first and primary allegiance. Thus, our life ought to always, I'll repeat, always, no matter who is around, no matter who your earthly leader is, no matter what your circumstances are, our life ought to always communicate that we are citizens by means of the gospel. I'll ask again, is that true of you? This Easter Sunday, any of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, is this true of your life? Your life communicate that you are a citizen of heaven. Do you live worthy of the gospel of Christ Sunday through Saturday, no matter who is around? Do you live worthy of the gospel? Look back at our text to the next point. Again, Paul says, live worthy of the gospel also by being unified. Back at the text, verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, whether I'm here or not, this is what I should hear. I should hear of your lives that you are properly adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're living worthy of the gospel. And for this next point, he says, part of what it means to live worthy of the gospel is to be unified as a church. That standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. To live worthy of the gospel is to pursue unity in the church. Next week, we'll take a deeper dive into the need for and motivation for unity in chapter 2. But here, Paul is giving us a bit of a preview. He says that we should be standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm is not a difficult concept to grasp. Imagine a hostile force invading the land. Soldiers create a line of defense and are told to hold the line no matter what. Stand firm. Do not allow yourself to be shaken or moved. That's the idea here. To stand firm in this context is not to be shaken from one's conviction concerning gospel truth. And he says that it is standing firm in the spirit. In other words, we have the help of the spirit. This is not just a general sense of being spirited together, right? Having the same kind of desires. 
but it's a reminder that we are all indwelt by the same spirit and thus ought to be standing firm in the spirit of God. We have help. He says it this way in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Peace ought to rule our gathering together as we're indwelt with the one spirit. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To the church at Philippi, Paul is saying, where's the eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit? So often people are eager not to maintain unity, but rather to simply get their point across or to get their way. We see these kinds of things happen in churches all the time. We joke about people arguing over something as simple as the color of the carpet, but it happens. Or the kinds of food to be prepared for a church function. Or more substantially, we may argue over worship style or other theological issues such as women preachers or end times events. Paul's point is that instead of focusing on things that divide, we must be committed to standing firm, not on the peripheral issues, but rather on central issues, on gospel truths. Back to our text again, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. No, this is not Paul's attempt to make everyone say the same thing. Rather, his, his point is to encourage believers at Philippi to remember the things that they do agree on and the fact that we're all indwelt by the same spirit. So have the same spiritual life in us and are all citizens of the same kingdom, having one mind with regards to the truths of the gospel, with regards to matters pertaining to our lives as citizens of heaven. We've talked repeatedly about the importance of the word of God, the centrality of the word of God in the life of the church. This is why. In order for us to maintain unity, we have to be unified around the word of God. Paul will say to the church at Colossae, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, not according to Christ. In other words, there are so many competing philosophies and ideologies in the world today. There are so many things that we could get caught up in discussing and debating over endlessly. In terms of gospel truth for the church at Philippi, there would have clearly been a temptation to compromise over the lordship of Christ. Caesar is Lord would have been the typical Roman motto, ascribing to Caesar absolute authority, even a godlike status and admiration of the leader of Rome. To the contrary, Christians would proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. Thus, in chapter 2, Paul reminds the believers of this elevated status of their Savior, which will eventually culminate in every knee bowing, in every tongue confessing, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says that's going to happen someday. So we need to be passionate about it today. Also in that early church, there was the presence of the so-called Judaizers who were referred to in this way because of their stubborn insistence that one must keep the law as a Christian in order to be righteous before God. Thus Paul's teaching in chapter 3 to remind them that the righteousness of God 
comes through faith in Jesus Christ and through faith in him alone, not through works of the law. These and others are gospel truths, beloved, gospel truths upon which the church has stood for millennia. Perhaps we don't struggle with the temptation to say Caesar is Lord, but certainly in our nation, particularly we struggle with the pressure to align ourselves with one political party over another, and that to the degree that some might as well be saying Republicans are Lord or Democrats are Lord. Beloved, and I'll say this carefully, we must be good citizens on earth, informed citizens, voting citizens. That is all a part of what it means to be good citizens. But again, as believers, nothing trumps the gospel. Nothing trumps the word of God, including politics. And we should not be dividing over that. Moreover, today we may not struggle with teachers who suggest that we need to keep the law of God in order to be acceptable as Christians. But there are those in our day who say that we must accept, embrace, and celebrate the sexually immoral revolution in order to be good people, in order to be virtuous or inclusive. And more and more, not only are the lines in the sand being drawn with much fervor, but their method of indoctrination starts at the earliest of ages. Even children's cartoons and teaching in public schools, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, that position was essentially the theological head of the Church of England, was quoted recently as saying this, and I quote, to be trans is to enter into a sacred journey to becoming whole, precious, honored, and loved by yourself, by others, and by God. End quote. Again, that was a quote from the former theological head, the former pastor of the Church of England. How significant is that? Now, that is either true or it isn't. It is either true, meaning he's speaking as a theological, biblical expert, or it isn't. But this is exactly an example of why the church has to be settled on its one standard of truth. Paul also says in Colossians chapter 2 that it is in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. He says, in him the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, and in him you have been made complete, who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, the word of God directly addresses the former Archbishop of Canterbury's claims. If he had turned to the scriptures instead of popular opinion, then he and any others who would claim the same thing would have found the answer to how humans can find fulfillment. We as human beings will only find fullness in Jesus Christ by faith in him, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, him who is the head of all rule and authority, him in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and of knowledge, him who alone knew no sin but bore all of our sins in his body on the cross, him who died, was buried, and rose victoriously. There's only fullness to be found in him. It's only as we gather together Sunday after Sunday around the word of God, it's only as we stand firm on the word of God Sunday through Saturday that we are sanctified by his truth so that we can with one mind stand firm in one spirit. But back to our text, to what end? He says that our standing firm in one spirit with one mind is how we're able to continue to strive side by side 
for the faith of the gospel. In other words, we cannot fulfill our gospel mission in the world, that striving side by side for the faith, unless we are united around the truth of the gospel. We cannot reach the world with the gospel if we're not unified with one mind and standing firm on the truth. Remember the words of our commander-in-chief after he had risen from and returned before he returned to heaven. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he says, I'm with you always. That's our mission as a church. That's what we ought to be pursuing. Paul is reminding them that they are a part of that mission through his ministry, but that they also have responsibilities where they serve in their community. They were responsible for reaching Philippi. And their conduct, their living in a manner worthy of the gospel, had a direct impact on that. Likewise for us, we are responsible for reaching Catonsville, because that's where we are. And our conduct, our living in a manner worthy of the gospel, has a direct impact on that. You cannot strive side by side for the faith with people with whom you are arguing, or with whom you are fighting over peripheral issues, or else confused about gospel truths that have been settled for 2,000 years. Again, as we go further into this letter, we will see how much of an issue this must have been for the church at Philippi. They were in danger of damaging their testimony to the world, in danger of losing the ability to effectively reach the world around them with the gospel due to disunity and infighting. He'll even call out two women by name later in chapter 4 to directly address some issues they were having. Paul is saying, this, is not, this should not be true of you. Focus on the things over which you are in agreement as citizens of heaven. Focus on the truths of the gospel. Remember that we're already united by the same spirit. Be of one mind in these things. Press forward with a mission in ways that you've been given to carry out that mission, to take the gospel to the ends of the world, to proclaim the good news among the nations, to make disciples. That brings us to our third and final point that we must live worthy of the gospel with confidence in God's sovereignty, regardless of persecution. Look again at verse 28. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. The church must be unified because the reality is that we will always have opponents. Part of Paul's point in these couple of verses is that the way we respond to our opponents has gospel implications. To put it another way, we ought to continue to live with confidence in God's sovereignty in spite of opposition because this is what it means to live worthy of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, he says. The church, again, will always have opponents. It will always face opposition because we represent Christ. Jesus said it himself, a disciple is not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Now, Paul doesn't specify who these opponents are. He leaves it intentionally vague. I pointed out that some of the world's philosophies against which the church and the gospel stand in opposition already But its very existence, the church's very existence in a pluralistic, syncretistic, and inclusivistic kind of world means that we will be opposed. We believe in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all. 
We believe in the word of God as the rule and standard for life. We believe in the one gospel. We believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only savior for humanity. He alone conquered sin and rose again from the dead on the third day, a point which we celebrate. The world cannot accept that. So they will always be, there will always be opponents. It's up to us, however, to take care with how we respond to those opponents. Paul says again, not frightened in anything. Well, what if I lose my, go- my job because I'm standing up for gospel truth? Paul says, do not be frightened. The Lord will take care of you. What if my neighbors reject and ridicule me for standing up for gospel truth? Paul says, do not be frightened. What if my friends and family reject me for standing up for gospel truth, for believing the word of God? Paul says, do not be frightened. What if the government cracks down and doesn't allow me the full exercise of my faith? Paul says, do not be frightened. What if my life is in danger for naming the name of Christ? Paul says, do not be frightened. Friends, don't forget that Paul was writing this from prison. Of all the people at that moment, he had the opportunity to be frightened. But in the face of it, he reflected on all the reasons he had to rejoice in the Lord. He wrote a letter to encourage others, and he simply preached the gospel to anyone who would listen. That was Paul's response to persecution. I'm just going to keep preaching the gospel and keep rejoicing in the Lord. But again, why is it important? Why is it important for us not to be frightened by our opponents? He says a few things in the next couple of verses. First, look again at what he says in the verse. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I saw a very simple illustration that explained this. When you were young and on a sports team and you walked out on the field or in the court, whatever grounds for the match you were walking out on, you walked with confidence and a bold expression, Right? Even today when we watch sporting events, if you see someone kind of cowering or timidly walking out on the field, you know it's not going to end well for them. Everyone walks out with their game face on. It's a face of confidence, boldness. And the point is to let the opponent know that they will not be intimidated or shaken. Certainly for some, the desire is for confidence, and they project it to be a source of intimidation. But it is at least designed to ensure that the opponent knows that you mean business. You want to communicate to them, you're going down today, not me, right? Right. I'm going to be victorious. You'll fail. Well, certainly the Christian isn't called to take such an arrogant attitude toward those who oppose the faith. But what Paul is calling for here is confidence. He says, do not be frightened. Do not be afraid. To put it positively, be confident in the face of opposition. This will let your opponent know that they will not have the last laugh. We sing, a mighty fortress is our God. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Is that true or isn't it? If that's true, what do you have to worry about? In 1984, Mehdi Dibaj was imprisoned by the government of Iran on charges of apostasy for converting from Islam to Christianity. He languished in prison for 10 years until his case was tried in 1994. Some of the last lines of his written defense read, quote, Jesus Christ is our Savior and he is the Son of God. Imagine writing this to a Muslim judge. To know him means to know eternal life. 
I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person, in all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. End quote. Isn't that beautiful? In the face of certain death? Now, he was eventually acquitted because the State Department put pressure on them, but he was later found dead in a park. One of many for whom that was true, who had trusted in Christ in Iran. We do not have to fear our opponents. We can walk confidently through any opposition because we know that ultimately God will deliver them to judgment and us to salvation. Second, we don't have to fear our opponents because it is God who has appointed us to suffer. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Now those who know the word of God will hold firmly, steadfastly to the doctrine of election. God has chosen some. Now, there are all kinds of discussions around this particular doctrine and its implications, but I think the scripture is fairly clear that God has chosen some for salvation. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus said in those words that all of whom the Father gave him will come to him. So God the Father has given some to the Son. They will all come to him. He will give them eternal life and he will raise them up on the last day. Certainly that's not true of every individual person in the world. That is true of some. Now we don't know who the some are, so we just preach the gospel to everyone. That's our part. But God has chosen some. That's the point. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. God has chosen some. Back in our text, Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, meaning God has granted that we would believe in Christ. God has done that. Salvation is by the grace of God. We have been given the ability to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a but also in that verse. And I think that many of us will be glad to leave this but also out of the sentence. He says, not only has it been granted to believe in him, but it's also been granted to suffer for his sake. In other words, just as sure as God has made it possible for you to believe, God has chosen you to believe in his son, he's also chosen you, chosen me, to suffer for his sake. We've been chosen to suffer. Again, John 15, I mentioned this earlier. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 16, 1. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. 
The words of John, again, quoting Jesus in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus praying for the disciples and us through their ministry in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So there Jesus makes clear he's not going to remove us from suffering and from pain, but he's going to keep us in the midst of it. Peter gives a summary of Christ's teaching in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As much as we have and accept the doctrine of election, we must also accept the doctrine of suffering for Christ's sake. This is the example of the apostles back in Acts 5 when they were beaten for proclaiming Christ. The text says in verse 41 that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced in their suffering. Peter practiced what he preached. They rejoiced that they were worthy enough to suffer for the name of Christ. Where is that attitude today? I think that we're so afraid of offending people, so afraid of the consequences that we often couch our fears in the desire to not cause offense to people. And we couch our fears in a desire just to befriend people first, to make sure we're comfortable enough with them before sharing the gospel. That's not what the apostles did. They didn't take a year to befriend people first. They just told them the truth because that's what Jesus told them to do. And Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, so I don't need anyone else's permission to tell them the truth of the gospel. Jesus has given me permission already. You'll die in your sins if you don't put your faith in him. That's the truth. You can believe it or not. You're not, you're not offending me. You're offending the only one who can save you from your sins and from God's wrath. Just tell the truth. There are consequences. Trust the Lord to deliver you. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Back in our text, that's Paul's point. As Christians, as those who bear the name of Christ, as citizens of heaven who herald his kingdom by our lips and our lives, we will be opposed. We will suffer persecution. But this persecution, this suffering, is something that God has ordained. It's something that God has sovereignly granted for us to endure for Christ's sake. If God has ordained it, then he is in control. He'll make sure that you don't suffer beyond what you're able, and he'll sustain you through it. No, that doesn't mean that we have to be proud and obnoxious about our faith or to malign others who don't believe the same things that we do or to look down upon them as if they're worthless sinners. That's not even the point. We are to be gentle. We are to be peaceable. We are to seek peace. Paul talks about that in Titus 3. But it does mean that we should not shrink away or fall away with fear when they oppose the truth. God has appointed you to this. And he's sovereignly in control of whatever happens. We shouldn't fear our opponents. God will ultimately bring judgment. 
Moreover, he has appointed us to suffer, not flesh and blood. We don't battle against flesh and blood. But the reality also is that suffering for Christ's sake is for our good. Because the more we suffer for Christ's sake, the more we'll long to be with him. Look at verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is the conflict that they saw and now hear from him? It's what he just said in the previous section. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on the flesh is necessary for your, for your sake. He wants to go to be with Jesus because he knows that that is the best. He says that's far better. And yet he also knows that remaining in the flesh, remaining in this life will mean fruitful labor. And Paul said, I'm in conflict over those things. He says, as you suffer persecution, as you endure affliction for Christ's sake, you'll also struggle in the same way. In other words, it will be difficult. You will suffer for Christ's sake. But don't miss the point that there's fruitful labor to be had. Again, the end of 1 Corinthians 15, thinking about the resurrection, doesn't just move us to only think that we want to be with Jesus, but it encourages us today with the labor and the ministry we have to do today. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in what? In the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Again, the example that Paul has presented thus far is that of joy-filled labor. He suffered, yes, but he also rejoiced in the midst of that suffering. As he shared the gospel with many, built the church through his work, and brought glory to his Savior through it all. In other words, a part of what it means to live as a citizen of heaven while we wait the return of our king is that we pursue and always abound in fruitful, gospel-oriented labor, not sitting on the sideline and watching everyone else. That was Jesus' perspective, was it not? To be always abounding in the work that his father had given him? Paul says in chapter 2 that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, a criminal's cross. Again, to his disciples, he said that the fields are already white for harvest. Now is the time for harvest. Now is the time to work, to labor. And what greater labor was there than the cross? When he prayed before the cross, he said, Father, let this cup pass. Yet what? Not my will, but your will be done. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He said, it doesn't matter if it's a shameful death. I'm going to do it for the joy set before me, the joy of serving my father, the joy of bringing many sons to glory. If that was true for our commander-in-chief, our savior, our king, as citizens of the kingdom, how much more should it be true of us? There's work to be done, beloved. Are you busy doing kingdom work? Jesus died for you to set you apart to do kingdom work. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we're waiting for him, should we just sit back and, you know, put our feet up? He says, no. We're waiting for the appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So many want to claim Christ for the benefit of heaven, but ignore the work to be done on earth. Or else they start to do work for Christ for the kingdom, and if at any point they're inconvenienced or burdened or persecuted for the name of Christ, they give up and walk away, and you can't count on them. They won't labor for Christ's sake. Is that you, Christian? Do you see labor in the Lord to be your responsibility as a citizen of heaven? If not, why not? What is preventing you, or else what's more important? For our part, there is work to be done in Catonsville. One of the many things on the top of my prayer list is our faithfulness in reaching this community. There's so much more that we could do. And in case you're wondering, it has nothing to do with balloons. If you don't know the reference to that, it's okay. Don't worry about it. But there is more labor to be done, beloved. We have work that can be done with our website and Facebook. And as much as you know, we can talk about Social media, we can, we can reach people in certain ways that way. People have come to the church because they found our church online or because they saw something on Facebook. We have a church that needs to be cleaned regularly, grounds that need to be tending for physical needs, work days for our members. We have people in place in a lot of these areas, the nursery that needs additional hands, but they could use help. And a lot of things that require prayer. Perhaps you can't lift a hammer or fiddle around on a computer or work a sound booth, but you can pray. I've told you all of my mentor um, of many years who's with the Lord now. But one of the most convicting things to me about his life and ministry is that even beyond his time in full-time ministry, he saw his ministry as that of prayer. And he was in stage four of cancer for most of his time of his retirement, but he committed to praying for some 130 people daily by name. He said, that's my ministry. Now, there were other things that he did. He taught when he had the opportunity. He sought to encourage pastors in whatever churches they were serving, they were attending. But he saw prayer as his primary ministry, and he did that faithfully. So if you can't physically do too much, you can always pray. Let that be your ministry. Pick up the phone. Call your brethren, pray with them, pray for them. But there's all kinds of stuff to be done. I can't do it on my own, nor should I. And I won't. Because <laughs> the ministry is a ministry for the church. It's for all of us. But listen, and back to the point of the text, the more we do as a church, as a church of Jesus Christ, the more the world will push back. They will push back. They will reject us because they hated Jesus and they hate all of what he stands for. When you name the name of Christ, you put a target on your back. That's perhaps why it is so much easier for people to celebrate an Easter bunny than it is for them to celebrate a risen Savior. It is hard to be a Christian. Nobody promised that it would be easy. 
Dying to self, living for Christ, living for others, suffering for the name of Christ. Those things are hard. Living for a kingdom that is already but is also not yet. That's hard, beloved. But that's the life that we're called to. And again, we do have echoes of the kingdom. We have glimpses of the joys of the kingdom through one another as we gather and as we serve, even in the midst of suffering. But don't fall away when it gets hard. Because we know that the suffering has a good work in increasing our longing to see our king. If you're not so devoted to the work of the Lord, perhaps it's either because you're not actually a Christian, though you may think you are, or perhaps it's because you haven't suffered enough for Christ's sake. Because again, the Lord uses suffering for Christ's sake to make us long for the kingdom and our king more. So if you're finding that longing lacking, maybe it's because you need to do more. You need to serve more, engage more. Put your back to, into it a little bit more. Put your hand to the plow a little bit more. And the more you suffer, the more the Lord will give you a greater desire for his kingdom. I like the song Blessings by Laura Story. We were listening to that over this past weekend. In that song, she says, what if your blessings... Referring to the Lord, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know you're near? What if the greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? What if they're God's mercies to cause you to want to know him more and to want to draw closer to him? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. If you claim the risen Christ as Savior and Lord, live as citizens of the kingdom. Regardless of our human leadership, by pursuing unity, and by the confidence that you have in the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another day. We thank you for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. We thank you for the example of Paul, the apostle, and the reminder in your word that you use our trials, our difficulty, even our suffering to draw us closer to you. Thank you for the reminder in your word that we are to live as citizens of the kingdom. As we continue to think on and meditate on your goodness to us and sending Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, to die, to bear our sins in his body on the cross, As we think on his burial and resurrection from the dead, triumphant over both sin and death. Father, motivate us, strengthen us to live as citizens of the kingdom. For our good and his glory in Christ's name. Amen.